0: Hello, hockey humans of the world, and welcome to Tough Call Pod Season 2, where I talk about all things player safety in the NHL, questionable hits, controversial calls. Join the over 2,500 others who follow me on Twitter, at Tough Call Blog, like and follow the Tough Call Facebook page, and find me on Instagram as well, Tough Call Podcast, for videos of all the latest incidents and to hear my takes on them. Send me your own clips of any hit or call you'd like me to talk about, and take a second right now and hit the subscribe button on this podcast, and while you're there, you could also leave me a review, preferably five stars. It'll really help me reach even more people and get the message out on how we can reduce the instances of head contact and concussions in hockey. Did you subscribe? Perfect, and thank you. Now on with the show. For this week's poll call, I don't actually have a poll from this previous week because As I said in my intro episode for this season, I'd like to have a poll every week, but I only want to have it if it's something that I actually care about. I don't want to have a poll just for the sake of having a poll. So there wasn't really anything I cared about as far as a poll goes. But this week there is something that I really would love to have your opinion on, and it's the Vincent Trocek Goal Review saga, I guess you could call it. And what happened was at the 1825 mark of the second period, Carolina player Vincent Trocek scored a goal to give Carolina the lead 4-3. Columbus challenged the goal, believing that Trocek was offside, which he clearly was, uh, upon video review. So anyway, the, r- the review happens, it's very quick, and the official points to center ice saying, good goal, the call on the ice is confirmed, we have a good goal. The Columbus Blue Jackets bench is obviously confused, and a little bit upset, and then on top of it all, they get dinged with the automatic two-minute minor for a failed coach's challenge. So not only are they all of a sudden down 4-3, now they're also down a man and have to kill off a penalty. Because there was less than two minutes left in the second period, that power play would carry over to the third period, but sometimes during the intermission, it was decided that the goal was in fact offside and shouldn't have counted, and therefore, the league was gonna let the goal stand, but they were going to wipe out the remainder of the power play. So, all of a sudden, Columbus didn't have to kill off the rest of the power play. It ended five on five, but the goal still counted. Now, I'm not going to sit here and dive too deeply into how that happened and what could be done to change the system and what the rules are and all that stuff. I don't really care. And you can see all that stuff online. What I'm interested in is the league's decision to not let that power play continue and how everyone feels about that. So, my poll call question this week is, Do you think the NHL handled the Vincent Trocek goal review properly? Or do you think if the goal was allowed to stand, the power play should have been allowed to finish as well? Or do you think if the power play was cut short, the goal should have been taken back? So basically your choices are, yes, they did a good job. They let the goal stand, but they cut the power play short. That's all they could do. That's perfect. Or are you in the camp that you believe that if they were going to let the goal stand, then they need to let everything else stand as if... As if it was a good goal, so the power play should have continued as well. Or the final option is, if they're going to stop the power play, if they're going to cut that power play short and admit that that goal shouldn't have counted, should they also have taken the goal off the board and started the game from the moment that goal Mm -hmm. review happened? So your options on the poll are, yes, good job, PP should have continued, or goal should have come back. And there's currently... Just a little over two days left in that. So like I said, that's my pinned tweet. Go to my Twitter, at toughcallblog. Find my pinned tweet or search it under the hashtag hashtag pollcall and find that question and have your say. As far as this week's fines and suspensions recap goes, I don't actually have the physical number of fines and suspensions I would have had this week in front of me. I just don't have my notes in front of me. So I apologize for that. But I can tell you that there were a lot. And while I'm not happy about that in the sense that obviously a lot of bad things happened, I am happy in the sense that they were things that I predicted would happen. Uh, it, it means to me that my my methodology or my approach to player safety would have prevented these incidents because I picked up on these types of things so early in the year, and, and I would have gotten the message across to players not to do them anymore. For example, I'm still watching the trend of trips and hits with the legs, the leg sweeps, the kneeings, and slew foots. They're a big one this year, and... Of course, I pointed those out from training camp. This is a pattern particularly out from training camp with the Vancouver Canucks. And sure enough, they had another one the Vancouver Canucks did six days ago where Antoine Russell was penalized for kneeing Jeff Petrie. And then Brendan Dillon, of course, on Capo Calco, which I'll identify right now as one of my misses uh, by the NHL this week in our hits and misses section because somehow they called coincidental minors by giving Calco a... An embellishment penalty. I don't understand how they got to that conclusion. Dylan stuck his leg out like he shouldn't do, and that actually plays into something else I've been talking about, where defenders refuse to admit that they've been beat. They refuse to accept it, and they just reach out and try and grab a piece of anybody. So Dylan was going to miss this check on Kako, and instead of just you know saying sucking it up and saying you know what I got beat, I got to recover he he just stuck his leg out just reached out to get a piece because he just couldn't allow this person to get by him that's the mentality you have going in you will hit at all costs get contact at all costs even if it means sticking your own leg out and going knee on knee with someone and, and potentially injuring yourself You can't let them get by. You'd rather see a knee injury on yourself than allow this person to get by. Now, I know that's not all going through their head, really. They're just acting on instinct because the whole idea is to try and stop their opponent. I get it. Not everyone is that malicious, and it's not that bad. But really, that's how close we're coming. And to have an official give an embellishment penalty to someone who just went knee-on-knee with an opponent... Like, I don't know if you've ever had your knee clang against someone else's knee, but that hurts. They say it's dangerous for a reason. It's very painful. Even if it doesn't really cause a significant injury, that instant impact is just something that you you just really need to take a second after the fact and go, Whoa, let's see if all the pieces still work. There's a little bruise feeling right now. Let's see how that's going to go. You do need to take a minute and gather yourself after something like that happens, even if it's not a significant injury. So... I can understand why somebody would lay there and hold their knee and just take a second and see what's going on with it. So to see an official give an embellishment call like that on a situation where it's leg on leg, even if he thinks it was just a little foot trip and maybe the guy's a little over the top, where it's such a delicate type of injury, a sensitive area, you'd think they'd give a little leeway there. My other miss is the hit from behind by Jalen Chatfield and Alex Kerfoot of the Leafs. This is about as obvious a missed call as there ever could be. And not to give into the conspiracy theories because every fan thinks their team is being screwed over all the time. And spoiler alert, you're right. Your team is being screwed over. They are getting hosed. But it's just their team generally isn't getting screwed over any more than anyone else's team. That's where the conspiracy goes wrong. But I am going to throw the Leafs fans a very small, flavorless bone here and say maybe there is something against Kerfoot. Is it too late to take that back? I don't know. We'll see. I have it out there now. But... It is what it is. This is a terrible missed call, hit from behind, the referee staring right at it and lets it go. I don't get it. And as I said, I'm not happy there were a lot of incidents, but I am happy in that one way. And I'm also happy in the sense that there were so many questionable hits, not just the obvious train wrecks and then the somewhat mild ones. There were so many borderline ones that happened there were a good four or five ones this week that sparked major debates in public interest, borderline plays that are all on the surface very similar. And with that many fresh incidents to unpack, it's a perfect opportunity to detail what minute differences I look for and why I feel so strongly and which ones are dirty and which ones are not. The There's so many comparables this week, and, and I'm saying some of them are obviously dirty and some of them aren't, and people are looking at them going, well, what's the difference? And now this is my good chance to tell you. So... There was a Romanov hit on Shabbat. Shabbat was driving the net and Romanov cut across the slot and just nailed him with a clean check. And of course, there was a little fight afterwards because players overreacted. But to me, this was one of the cleanest checks there ever was. It was just solid contact. It, That happens sometimes in checking. I want to see big impact. And people get that idea about me that, no, trying to hit too hard, that's a penalty. No, you can hit as hard as you want, but those aren't hits, those are checks. And I talk about that all the time. He did nothing to create that momentum and that power. All he did was glide in full control, no extension, and got into another player's path. And the thing that made this such a high impact was Shabbat's speed going in. So Shabbat basically hits himself. Romanov just puts himself in a good position where he takes away Shabbat's ice and and Shabbat basically hits himself with his speed. And the fact that those two players were moving fast at the same time is what creates that heavy, heavy impact. It it wasn't anything Romanov did. That's the difference between a big check and a big hit. And then there was another, in in the next game, Romanov got called for interference. There was a Senators player digging for a a loose puck in front of the net, and Romanov just comes over and just bowls him over, just train wrecks him. But again, it was clean. There was nothing wrong with it. It wasn't high. It wasn't a launch. It wasn't a lunge. It was just a powerful player going over and knocking a player over by being physically strong. I loved it. To me, that's a net battle. There's no cross check there. There's no punches to the head. There's no none of that nonsense. This was just a strong man skating over and being strong on his opponent and knocking him over. That is a net battle. That is what it means to be physical. That is what it, that is what it means to go to the dirty areas and be strong. You win a battle. Those are the battles you like to see. Would you have to resort to stick work and spearing and slew footing and all that? That is not a battle. That's just being greasy and gutless. Suck it up, be strong, be a better skater, be stronger on your skates, and win that battle like Romanoff did. But that's kind of another point. I got a little sidetracked there, and I'm sorry. Uh, to go back to the Romanoff hit on Shabbat, that is the comparable we're talking about. So then when you look at a hit like the one that uh, Radko Gudis threw on uh, Luke Glendening... Again, it's I, I use the word throw when I shouldn't. It's the language I get sucked into with using that everybody uses because Gudis does not throw anything here. Again, all Goodis does is step into Glenn Denning's path. Glenn Denning is picking up the puck and he's starting to wheel up the boards and Gudis sees that and he takes a great angle, puts himself in a good position, lines himself up where Glenn Denning basically just skates right into him. Now, Goodis can increase the power of the impact by launching by lunging forward, by driving himself unnecessarily forward and upward into this hit and getting the head, or he could do what he did. He could stay low, plant, brace for impact, and lean slightly forward enough to absorb the blow. But basically, again, Glenn Denning is providing the force of this impact by how fast he's going. And he basically just checks himself. Gudis just puts himself into his path, Glendinny skates right into him, and that is the contact. Again, this is a big check, but it is not a hit. Gudis does nothing to unnecessarily increase this impact. He does nothing to really create the impact other than putting himself in good position. And that is just being smart. That is just being a good skater, have good timing, good angling skills. These are all the skills you need to make a check. It is not someone who's just bigger than another player and abuses that size difference and that strength difference by reaching out and grabbing, launching, you know, extending into it. There's none of that. It's just a perfect positional play that literally anyone, four foot, five, six foot two, doesn't matter. Anybody could make that check and make it just as hard as Gudis did because it's Glenn Denning that is causing the, the impact to be as hard as it was based on his own speed. Anybody can do this. So whenever, whenever anyone brings up the whole height difference, and we're going to talk about the, the Myers hit again on, on Armia, it's the same thing. Myers is so tall that, oh no, he, there's no way he could possibly not hit anyone in the head. So basically you're giving anyone, anyone in the NHL who's six foot or over a green light to hit the head all the time. There's no way they could possibly not throw a check to the head. But there's a difference between a check to the head and a clean check that results in head contact. And that is what drives me crazy about Rule 48, as you know, because a really clean check, and I said this about Berkey, Brian Burke, he was absolutely right when he said, you can't blow a guy up and not get some piece of the head. Well, in a lot of ways, he's right, as I mentioned on my last podcast, because Definitely, in clean checks, there is still a good chance you are going to make head contact based on the posture that players have when they're skating really fast. It's what they do. They, they squat down, they get low, they power forward, and their head is leading the way usually because you're supposed to have your head up and looking around. But when you have a player like Myers who extends up into that hit and makes upward projection explosion and lifts his shoulder up high... There's head contact that's avoidable, and there's head contact that's unavoidable, and that's the kind of crap that people do. They extend up and out that makes head contact that happens avoidable. This Gudis hit on Glendening, the head contact was all unavoidable based on the way Glendening was skating. But it is the type of head contact that is controllable, and Gudis does everything he can to control the way Glendening's head is impacted. So and another one to look at is the Giovanni Smith hit on Mackenzie Weger. And the difference between the Myers hit on Armia and the Giovanni Smith hit on Mackenzie Weger, those two are kind of the same. The difference between those two and the Gudis hit on Glendenning is that Gudis's angle of approach is perfect, where he's going to hit through the core. He's going to hit the head, but he's also going to get significant impact with the player's body. And that is what you want to do, to catch the core. And if the head happens to follow or be part of that, then it is what it is. But Myers comes from the side. He skates across the front of Armia's body and extends up into the head. And that's the exact same thing that Giovanni Smith does on Mackenzie Wieger. He is coming from a side approach. When you do that, you have to angle a lot more slowly on a, like a 45-degree angle towards the player and slowly squeeze them out. Whereas these players, they skate straight across, almost completely perpendicular at a 90 degree angle to the path their opponent is going. It skates straight across the front of the body. And in the case of Smith on Weger, I know he thought Weger was going to turn a certain way or whatever it was, but his angle of approach was such that there was no way he wasn't gonna hit the head anyway. It was a terrible angle of approach. And then again, with the upward extension, because he wasn't lined up properly, and that's the the secret to all this, because he wasn't lined up properly, when Wieger did make a shift, Smith had to make an adjustment by ex- extending a part of his body and shifting his weight upward and outward into the check, because otherwise he was going to miss. And this is where I tie it all in together with what I said about players refusing to accept when they're beat or when they have made a mistake and are not lined up properly, and then they reach out and stuff. Because when you are in a good position to check, a good body position and proper angling and you know the right posture... The chances of a player getting around you are, are not that great. You have a really, really good chance of winning the battle. And then, of course, we have the, the Gabrancid hit on Evans, which is literally exactly the same hit as the Tyler Myers hit on Armia. The same angle of approach, the same upward extension, the same head contact result. That is why I feel those ones are different. The Gouda's check is perfectly clean. And the Smith hit on Weger is dirty as well. It's not necessarily that I think the intent was any different. I don't think those players were intending to hurt someone or intentionally targeting the head, as the word says. But the actions they took were things that players would do if they were targeting the head. They didn't do anything to show that they were not targeting the head. And when you go in with that mindset, then when players do make sudden shifts in position, you can't possibly react because you've already forfeited control by overcommitting, overextending, overreaching, taking a bad angle. You can't control what happens now. And the onus is on the hitter to control the outcome of the check. And it's the same thing with boarding. It's why I don't understand why people go so recklessly into the boards and why we blame the victim. We always say, oh, the player turned. What was the person supposed to do? Stop on a dime? He was already committed to the hit. But if you are going in with the right approach, the checking approach, stick on puck, you are able to back out at any moment. You are not extending and reaching. There's no no time where it becomes hit now or hit never because in, in a checking approach, The contact could happen at any time it could happen early in the process it could happen later in the process because all you are is putting yourself in a position and waiting for that player to run into you whereas if you do something where now all of a sudden you're trying to run into that player where you are the one delivering or throwing or creating the contact then the contact can only happen the right way at the moment you are trying to determine when it happens. And if the opponent makes a sudden shift and you're, and you're already committed to that moment in time, that's when things go wrong. So just because someone turns his back, yeah, it would have gone, gone right if they hadn't have turned their back. But if you do it the other way, the checking way, then it will go right almost every time no matter what the opponent does. So I don't understand why we wouldn't make the player who's going in to, to do the angling, to do the check, why we wouldn't make them do that all the time so that when an opponent does make an unnecessary shift or isn't protecting themselves, then it doesn't matter anyway. Why wouldn't we wanna do things the safest way possible while still allowing the player who's doing the checking to perform the task they need to do, which is try and make a play on the puck, try and eliminate their opponent from the puck. They can still do that. You're not taking anything away from them and you're making the game safer. It's a no-brainer to me. Hi, folks. Thanks for listening to Tough Call. If you're enjoying my takes on head contact and player safety, but you'd like to hear me talk about other aspects of hockey, I'd like to take just a minute and tell you about another project of mine, Bolton from Bolton. Bolton from Bolton is where I, Josh Bolton, and my brother Matt, you guessed it, Bolton, Set each other up for a lively hockey talk covering literally anything to do with it. It's not heavy analysis and stats. It's kitchen banter, like you do with your own family and friends. Head over to YouTube and subscribe to our Bolton from Bolton channel. That's B-O-U-L-T-O-N. Or find us on all audio formats as well. We find ourselves funny. Maybe you will too. And there's only one way to find out. See you there. And now, back to Tough Call. Now we'll get into my general discussions that I... Now I'm just going to get into my topics of general discussion. We've had a couple of instances of players being the aggressor of an altercation this year, where they've dropped the gloves and tried to force a clearly unwilling opponent into a fight. We touched on this last week when I mentioned how one year ago Sean Monaghan goaded Ryan Nugent Hopkins into a fight in the Battle of Alberta, and the best example so far this season happened this week when Ottawa Senators Colin White went after Jesse Pugliarvi of the Oilers after one of his own teammates, one of White's own teammates, missed a check on Pugliarvi and smashed his own face into the ice. And for some reason, White reacted to this as if Pugliarvi had done something to him. He followed him all the way down the ice. Then after the whistle, slammed him into the corner with a cross-check to the head and neck area, and then dropped his gloves and took a free push punch to a clearly uninterested Pogliari. And guess what? The referee standing right there, zero penalties, no penalties, not just inadequate penalties like a two-minute high stick or something, no call at all, nothing to see here, five on five, just go play. Now, I'm not actually going to fine or suspend White for being the aggressor here because technically he didn't actually throw any real punches. It was just one of those ones where you have your, your hand on a guy and you kind of push and punch at the same time. But it's an alarming thing just to be accepted. And it comes up again this week al- alone in an incident with uh, Jonathan Huberdor, which I'm going to focus on here in, in a minute in its own little segment because I have a lot of things to say about it. But anyway, I'm also going to talk about my theme of I've been talking about players not accepting when they're beat and trying to get a piece at all costs. And there was a play where Brad Hunt took a bad angle on Nico Rantanen, and when Rantanen slipped by, he stuck both his arm and his leg out and sent Rantanen flying. And I put this clip on a tweet, and people were saying, what are you talking about? It was clean. And I I was thinking, well, it wasn't dirty, but it was at least a trip. There was no call at all on this. It was one of those ones where Rantanen was... Make, he was skating down the boards and he made a sudden sharp stop and then cut to the middle and hunt was expecting him to carry on down the boards and that's where he committed to for the angle and he put himself in a vulnerable position where his skates were turned the wrong way and when Ranton had made that sudden cut back he was unable to to stop and go with him because his skates were already pointing the other way it was a perfect play by Rand, and the timing of it was perfect because he knew Hunt was ready to go the other way and that's why he turned that way to begin with and Hunt tried to reach out and get a piece and the good part about this example is it's one of those ones where I really don't think that Hunt was doing anything wrong he actually did everything incredibly well for the position he was in based on all the signs he was trying to make a play on the puck he reached across with his stick and actually got his stick on the puck and in doing so, he he also stuck his arm out because he had to reach across the front of Randman. The problem is it, it turned into a clothesline and a leg trip all in one shot. And again, I don't think he was doing anything malicious. It's just that the acceptance of this leads to the invitation of the acceptance of even more dangerous things, like in an earlier episode this season where I mentioned Alex Edler being beaten by Connor McDavid. And as McDavid's flying by him in the neutral zone, he, he reaches out with his stick up and reaches out in the cross check and catches McDavid in the head and neck. That was back on January 13th. And, and if I was the DOPS, I would have fined him $1,000 for that. The purpose of that wasn't to punish that incident. $1,000 isn't very much. It's to indicate to players that that's a bad habit to get into and you need to do better. It's not a punishment. It's kind of a warning and kind of a message. Now... I should say, I don't think we should ever suspend based on intent. We can't get into a player's head. We can't make assumptions and accusations about what they're doing. I remember one time I was playing youth soccer. I think I was 16, 17 years old. And somebody tackled me. And I did not like the tackle very much at all. I was carrying the ball. They came from behind and they took me down. And the referee said, you know, play on. And that player that got me took the ball, obviously, from me and started going back the other way. And when I got up, I was mad at the call, and the official knew I was mad at the call. But I took that energy and turned it into coming back very, very hard. So if you look at that as an outsider, someone just tackled me. Now they have the ball, and are going the other way. I'm not happy about it, and now I'm running like a madman as fast as I can, chasing him from behind, and then I hit him with a really hard tackle. Now my tackle was clean, and the official didn't call anything, But I could see how an outsider looking at that would look at that and say, oh, they'd be very afraid seeing me running after that player with the ball, thinking I was going to exact some sort of revenge. And if I had done something dirty, maybe they would have given me an extra penalty because they would have assumed it was out of anger. But no, it was just that, you know what, that person stole the ball from me. I'm the kind of competitor where I refuse to let that player get away from me. Even if they did something malicious to me, I'm going to chase them down, and I'm going to work hard and just win that battle. I wasn't going to do anything bad to them, but if I had, let's just say something had happened, I missed the ball, clipped their ankle, you know, would somebody suspend me because they thought it was a rage tackle? Maybe they would if they made assumptions about that. But again, as I said, my mindset was, no, I just need to get that ball back because I just want to have that back. I don't want to lose that battle. So I had no malicious intent in, in my approach to that tackle. And it would have been unfair to suspend me for that. So I don't think you can make assumptions about why you think a player's doing things. I think you can only base it on the evidence in front of you. And the big one I can think of was Gus Nyquist of Detroit, his high stick to Spurgeon in 2017, where he basically stabbed Spurgeon in the eye. And what happened was there was a board battle, and Spurgeon gave Nyquist a little cross-check to the back and knocked him over. Nyquist wasn't happy about it, so he got up, and he's a left-handed shot, And he turned his stick over to the left and as it was going over it stabbed Spurgeon in the face and it was a pretty serious injury and for me for me I believe his intent was only to swing his stick over top of Spurgeon to get it around properly in a spot where he could cross check him back that's what happened to him he got cross-checked I thought he was going to get up and cross-check him back as players do but unfortunately when he was pulling his stick around Spurgeon's body to get it over to cross-check he caught him in the face, and what it looked like was he got up, he was up, upset, and he took his stick in a pitchfork fashion and jabbed him in the face on purpose, and he got six games suspension for that. Now, people wanted the book thrown at him for that, for the result only, and not the action, I think, because as I said, my interpretation of the action was that he was just trying to pull a stick over and go cross-check for cross-check, but it's hard to argue that based on the evidence, because even if he did not mean to poke him in the eye, did he really do things that someone who didn't want to poke someone in the eye would do? No, he still used this stick carelessly, he still spun it recklessly, and he did the damage, so he should do the time. It's not the intent in terms of what you think mentally a player was thinking. I think that's too harsh and you could be wrong too often. It's the intent to injure in terms of the actions itself that a player takes. Is this something avoidable? that could reasonably be assumed to cause significant injury. Well, yes. And how does it relate to hockey? Because players do this all the time, to sneak around an opponent. If you're skating one-on-one with someone and you're trying to get by them, you make a little shift and then you pull your stick over their head. That's a natural hockey motion. You can obviously see that the intent is just to free your stick over into another position where you can get the puck on the other side of your opponent. But oftentimes you'll catch a piece of their helmet or their head or whatever on the way by, and it's a high stick. But is it a malicious high stick to the head? Well, no, because it's, you can tell, it's related to your hockey movement. Those are just accidents, and the actions a player has taken prior to those accidents clearly prove a hockey purpose. You can have the same result, but you get a much different punishment because of the hockey purpose of the play. So bringing it back to the present day, we can compare that to something Elias Patterson did earlier this year, where he got fined $3,987 for slashing Sean Bonahan in the chest. It was retaliatory. It was the same kind of idea as Nyquist. It was different than a hockey play. That's why you can punish that one, and you wouldn't punish someone in another incident. And that's why we don't punish based on result. Again, present day, comparing the Edler shot to McDavid to the Hunt takedown of and really the intent was the same for both plays as far as hockey purpose and as far as mindset by the players. There was no real intent to injure, there was nothing malicious about the plays, but the presentation, the execution, and the evidence of those plays is not the same at all. For Hunt, his stick was down, his arm was down, he went stick to puck, his leg was out in front because he was trying to change direction too suddenly, not because he was trying to get a piece of a knee on knee this, these, all of these things that he did are what someone would do if they were in fact trying to play the puck and Rantanen wasn't even there. And just as importantly, it's also not what a player would do if they were trying to injure an opponent or get a piece of the opponent. Whereas Edler, on the other hand, he reached it with two hands on his stick and his stick was at head height. I fully believe all he wanted to do was knock McDavid off stride, and there was no malicious intent to injure or whatever, but his actions are exactly what someone who was trying to injure or cause a headshot would do too. Just as importantly, this action was not even remotely close to the safest option for someone who wanted to make a play on the puck. So even though his intent was not to perform a headshot on McDavid, he did everything a player who wanted to make a headshot would do, and he did nothing that a regular hockey player trying to make a regular hockey play would do. So for me, you have to punish that the same as if his intent was to injure McDavid in the head. Because he did have options. He did have a choice to make a better decision to convince us that he was trying to play the puck. He could have done better, and he didn't even try to do better, because in the NHL, accidentally on purpose is good enough. Now I want to talk to you about a sequence between the Florida Panthers and Nashville Predators from last week, and particularly a shift between Nick Cousins and Jonathan Uberdeau. Jonathan Uberdeau is one of the best-kept secrets of the National Hockey League. He's one of the top players and uh, just an incredible all-around guy, great goal scorer. And, of course, Nick Cousins wants to take him off his game. It's 2-1. Nashville's a little bit down and out. The boys need a boost, as they say. He needs to make something happen, inject some energy into the game. And who better to do that against than one of your opponent's top players? So they're lined up at a face-off against each other on the same side. And Cousins takes a few little weak cross-checks to Huberdeau, trying to knock him off his game. And sure enough, Huberdeau does a little circle around Cousins. He's a little upset, and he takes a a more aggressive cross-check right at Cousins' back. And nothing is called. The officials are just letting, letting good guys go at it and sort it out themselves, right? That's what you want, right? So that's what happens. So these cross checks are exchanged and Huberto is a little bit bothered by it. And this is, of course, the play isn't even going on. They're just waiting for the puck to drop and the puck won't drop because this is going on. So everyone's watching it. It's not like nobody sees it, but no, that's just two good guys in a little positional battle there trying to have, a, it's a little bit of, what do you call it, gamesmanship? You know, off the face-off. It is what it is. And everyone's just loving it. So, anyway, they drop the puck, and not much comes of it right away for about 20 seconds. It's a regular shift. But then a shot goes to the net, and the puck is covered, and there's a little bit of a net battle. And who's digging for the puck? But Huberto, because that's the kind of player he is. And who's right beside him? But Cousins. And Cousins is just in a regular battle with an unknown player in him. He just wants to make sure the puck doesn't go in. Then he realizes it's Hubertot, so he gives him an extra shot, stares him right in the face, and gives him a little little whack with the cross-check type action in the waist. And, of course, Hubertot doesn't like that. He's like, hey, what are you picking on me for? Get out of my face. I, I can only take this so many times. You better, you better stop doing that to me. And Cousins, of course, is going to say, well, I'm going to keep doing it to you. And there's another face-off in the neutral zone now this time, and they line up beside each other. And Cousins gives him another couple of shots. And Huberto's just had enough at this point, looking at him going, look, either drop your gloves or let's get this going or what. Like he's just talking to him, you know, trying to get him to fight. Let's settle this once and for all or get out of my face and stop doing it altogether. And Cousins doesn't. So Huberto drops his gloves, grabs Cousins, throws them down and tries to get him to, to fight up. You know, as they say, man up. Although I find that to be a ridiculous term, but man up, fight like a man. Anyway, Cousins does not. He holds his ground, keeps his gloves on, just lays there, lets the linesman take everybody away. And now you've got Huberto off his game. He's in the box, and everything's hunky-dory. Cousins has done everything right for his team. Gotten in the kitchen of, of a star player, taking him off his game. Now Nashville's right back in it. Huberto's pissed off and in the box. You've done your job. What a great contribution by Cousins to his team. So my question for all the fighting pundits out there is, isn't that exactly what fighting is supposed to get rid of? Little rats like Cousins, who get intentionally in stars' faces? Aren't we supposed to protect the stars with fighting? No, Huberto has to protect himself here. Now, that's not what I think of Cousins. These are just terms and expressions that people use. I like Cousins as a player, but I don't like this tactic. This tactic is exactly why fighting is supposed to begin the game. So shouldn't we be upset and not excited about cousins? Shouldn't we be telling cousins, look, you need to fight. If you're going to do all that stuff, then you need to accept the responsibility and fight. Why are we proud of him for sucking Huberto into this mess and then turtling? We're all of a sudden proud of him. Like, that's a great strategy. And, you know, Huberto looks like the jerk in this case. Oh, can't you take it? You're, you're such a big man. Why can't you just take that and play hockey and don't let him get to you? You're the one that got sucked into that mess. But in other cases, we look at Huberto as the hero that's taking care of business. What if another teammate had come in instead of Huberto defending himself? What if another teammate had come over to Cousins and said, look, if you're going to do that to Huberto, I'm going to take you down. And then when, he, when Cousins doesn't fight, they'd be like, oh, yeah, you're so tough against Huberto but you won't fight against me. And everyone would be praising that Florida teammate for going in. And even though he took a penalty, it would be so worth it because he was defending his teammate. He was showing everybody that no one does that to my teammate. You can't get away with that. And now that we know you're not going to fight, we know you're just a pansy, whatever, blah, blah, blah. But because Huberto fought for himself and Cousins didn't fight, now all of a sudden Cousins is the hero because He got Huberto to get sucked in, right? He did everything perfect. So I would love someone who's pro-fighting to explain to me how this code works and how you justify that decision. And for me, for my mind, my system would have sorted all that out before it even happened. Because Cousins was getting in Huberto's face, and I would be watching for that. I would say, look, that team's down. They're obviously going to try and pull some stunt, especially this guy. He's getting in Huberto's face, he's stalking him around the ice, and he keeps cross-checking them. So I might, I might give him one or two little weak ones, but a third, even if it's weak, that's three in a row there, big fella. I know what you're trying to do. You're going to go sit for two minutes and think about it. Next time you try that stunt, you're going to go again. And that would protect stars like Huberto from having to even drop the gloves in the first place. If you don't even want to call the cross-checks to cousins, if you want... To, to let the bullies try and be bullies and let the rats try and be rats and suck these stars off their game, then how did you not penalize Huberto for the cross-check to Cousins back? It's like you want people to get upset. The league, specifically, intentionally, as I pointed out last week, wants these players to elevate to the point where they can't control their emotions. And this is how they do it, by letting rats goad stars into feeling like they have to do things like that. Why don't we stop it right away by calling the crosschecks and making hockey players play hockey to win the game. Huberto's team is doing well. He's doing everything right. He's a star player. We should be embracing that, supporting that. And if the other team isn't playing well and they feel like they need to resort to dirty tactics or slimy tactics like this, then they shouldn't be rewarded for that. Because if you get to the point where you're not playing well enough and you have to do that, then you don't deserve to win the game of hockey. That's not what hockey is about at any other level. That is just what NHL hockey is about. And it is ridiculous. It needs to stop. At Tough Call, I'm not trying to pick on specific teams or individual players. I want to make the game safer for every player on every team, across every league, really, with no player left behind. I want to cover as many incidents as I possibly can to increase the sample size and make a stronger case for how harsher penalties and properly targeted player education can work in reducing head contact in hockey, all instances of it. The Department of Player Safety supposedly has people watching every second of every game. Now, as much as I'd like to watch every game, as much as I try to, and as much as I'd like to have video of every questionable incident, the truth is I'm only one man with an iPhone and the Game Center app. I already get a lot of help from people like you who send me videos or links to incidents, or even just a quick tweet or message saying, Hey, did you see? Third period, Bolts-Kings game, checking to the head penalty. Something like that. It means a lot, and it makes a huge difference. Follow me on Twitter at at Blog, and like the Facebook page, ToughCall, and as you watch, if you see a cheap play or something dirty or anything that makes you go, Hey, you idiot, what are you watching? How did you miss that? Please send it my way, and a big thank you to those of you who already do. Keep them coming. We'll